Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So we are jumping into Judges again, all right? So last week we talked about Samson, kind of uh, cracked open the book on Samson, talked a lot about the beginning of his life, the kind of the miraculous conversation with the angel, and today we're going to unpack a little bit more of Samson's life. I'll tell you right up front, we're not going to do an in-depth every drop of Samson, okay? We're going to leave some of it out and and, uh, leave some room for you to study on your own. I also want to kind of give you a heads up. What we're going to talk about today has the potential to um, stretch you and make you uncomfortable. Um, And it has the potential to get you wrestling with things about your faith that maybe you're currently wrestling with or maybe things you've never really thought of. Um, and, and the stuff that we're going to talk about is the kind of things that people outside of the faith, people that don't know and follow Jesus, they tend to look at these things as evidence for why they wouldn't want to follow God. If a God's like that, why would I want to be have anything to do with it? And then people inside the faith that believe and follow Jesus tend to look at these types of things as either just, I just want to ignore that part because I don't understand it, or they look at it and they wrestle with it, and it gives them a lot of angst. It's the kind of stuff that you hope nobody asks you about because you have no idea how you would answer. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today, and I hope you'll leave with one, a little bit better understanding, a little more comfort in talking about uncomfortable stuff, but we, I also hope that it points you to dig into God's Word on your own um, and just really study and grow in this particular topic. So with that in mind, let's look at some more of Samson, all right? So we're kind of fast-forwarding. Last week it was before he was born, and now he's a grown-up. And so we're going to do Judges chapter 14. It's in your notes, and then it'll be up on the screen. So Judges chapter 14 starts off like this. Uh, one day, when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women... Uh, woman, There was just one woman that caught his eye. Uh, And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye, and I want to marry her. Get her for me. You know, like you say, when you see a girl you want, you just go home and tell your dad, I want. It reminds me of when I had, like, little kids and trying to go through the toy aisle in Walmart, and it was the battle of the I wants, right? Just point, grab, like, there's not really a discussion. It's just, you meet my needs now. Right? That's kind of Samson. And so his parents, though, had to be remembering this uh, a miraculous conversation that they had with the angel of the Lord that, that said, this son that's going to come is going to be someone that will begin to deliver you from the Philistines. And so they've got in their mind, like, when is this going to start happening? When's, when's it going to start coming to pass that, that, that somehow he begins to deliver us from the Philistines? And so with that sort of you know, anxious waiting, finally he comes to them and he says, I want to marry a Philistine. And it's sort of like, uh, that's not what we expected. That's, that's not what we were thinking God maybe had in mind. And so to their credit, they don't just roll over. They actually push back. Verse three says, his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She looked fine. That's my translation. It's the new Thad translation. 
Here's the thing I want you to look at in this passage. That word uncircumcised is really important because it is highlighting what his parents cared about. That in that culture, for a family to have the men in the family to be circumcised meant that they were in a covenant. They had made an agreement to follow God. They were, it was symbolic of their commitment to be in a real relationship with God. And so for a girl to come from that kind of family would have meant like you're coming from a family that's committed to the Lord. And opposite, for you to come from a family that's uncircumcised, you're, com- you're, you're picking a girl from a family who's not committed to our God. And so they're wrestling with that. They're struggling with like, like of all the girls in all the land from all of the right kinds of families, why are you picking this one? Couldn't you find someone from a family who's following God is essentially what they're saying. But I also want you to take note of what they're not saying. What they're not saying is we really have a problem with you marrying a girl from that town. They're not saying we really have a problem with you marrying a girl that it comes from a different race than you or her color of skin or nationality is different. None of that is what they have an issue with. They have an issue with, is this girl and her family committed to follow God or not? Now, I put some rabbit trails for you to chase on your own uh, in your notes. We're not going to unpack it in here, but some of you may be really familiar with and comfortable with what God thinks about who you marry. Right? You may, you may have studied that in depth. Others may have like glanced at it once in a while, and some of you may have no idea what God has to say about who you should marry or shouldn't marry. And so I put some stuff in there to help all of us. Like, as a church, how awesome would it be if we all personally had a really good grasp on what God thinks about who we should marry for our own personal life, for the kids that we're raising, for the conversations that we're going to have with other people? If we were giving God advice, when we talk to people about what does God think about who you marry. And so I just put that in there as for just for you to dig in on your own so that we're all digging into scripture when it comes to what does God think about who we marry and why. Okay, so that's that. Samson, uh, as we see in this particular deal here, he doesn't really want to listen to his parents. He wants to just do what he wants to do because she's right in my own eyes. And that really is kind of the, the catchphrase that sums up the problem that Israel has been struggling with all throughout the series of Judges, all throughout this time of Judges, is that God's people seem to keep getting in this rut where they, they're really more concerned and more comfortable doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's why we see this refrain over and over throughout the book of Judges where it keeps coming up, where we start it, and it's like, oh, it's that word, it's that sentence again. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's this contrast between like what, what they're doing God sees as evil and somehow what they're doing seems right to them. And therein lies the rub. And that was definitely the problem with uh, Samson is that he seemed to just do what was right in his own eyes over and over and over, right? I see it, I want it, I take it. That's kind of his life motto. Um, it works fine if you're the strongest man alive, you know, right? Like if you've got superhuman strength, but I don't think it's a great plan for everybody else. Samson, we're going to see, is super impulsive. He's completely sensual. Really, everything we see him doing seems to be like a reaction about how he's feeling about what he's seeing. And so it's like whatever he happens to lay eyes on evokes a feeling, and then it's action, 
right? He just lives in the 10-second time frame around whatever's going on in his life. And we're going to see that that doesn't play out really well. But we're also going to see that it does. And that's where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for us, as we'll see. In the beginning, it's also important that we note that he found her in Timnah. And so Timnah is in the heart of Israel. And so we've got Philistines living uh, comfortably in Israel. And we've got uh, God's people intermingling, like living amongst and with each other. And, and yet it says over and over in the text that the Philistines were ruling the Israelites. They, they had captured them. They had conquered them. And God's people don't look like they're living under, uh, like, uh, with enemies they hate, they're, with enemies they can't get along with. They actually look like they've just sort of blended together so much that you can't seem to see the lines between who's who and which families and, and tribes are they from. And, and that's part of the big problem that God is going to deal with through the life of Samson. It's, he's, so, he's so comfortable that it's like, well, I'll just go here because I, I like this girl. It's based on like, hey, I just am going to do what feels good. And throughout the, the rest of this story, we're going to see how God is trying to go about helping his people with something they don't yet realize they need help with. They've blurred the lines so much that, that really at this point it, it could be said that they might be a generation or two away from actually becoming non-existent anymore, like indistinct as the people of God. They could just blend in with everybody else. And God is about rescuing and redeeming his people even when they aren't crying out for help. And I think that as we see how they were living, that's one of the reasons why we don't see them in the beginning of the story of Samson. We don't see God's people crying out for help. Like, oh my gosh, you've got to help us. Things are so terrible. Things are so difficult. Like, they're treating us so badly. Like, God, please help us. We're in these terrible circumstances because they don't actually think they're in terrible circumstances. They're not asking for something they don't think they need. And that's pretty revealing about where they were and how far they had kind of assimilated into the culture around them. I, I think that they probably had succumbed to the old adage, like, if you can't beat them, join them. And they were well on their way to the join them part of that idea. And so one author, when he was uh, writing about the message of judges, said, there's no such thing as a harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it's because the world has taken over. Now, I know right now we live in a time where it feels like there's so much conflict, it gets a little bit like overwhelming and get, we get a little bit tired of it, I think, of all the division and all the conflict and all of the this side and that side. But I also think that just remembering this, it's, it, it, there's a little bit of encouragement. I, like, I'm glad we live in a time where we're still arguing about where you can put the Ten Commandments and where you can't. I'm glad we're still living in a time where people are upset when a coach prays for a high school football team and it blows up into a huge problem or a college coach prays or teachers try to do Christian things and it bothers people and there's angst and it hits the news. Like The fact that there is conflict about those things gives me hope because it means the church is still in the fight. Like, we're not totally succumbed to the culture where, hey, I can't remember the last time I heard any problem with Christianity. Like, it just seems, everything seems smooth. Boy, we're in big 
trouble if that day ever comes. And verse 4 is really telling. It says, His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Now, here's where it starts to stretch into that uncomfortable stuff. Is we see these two communities that are so intertwined and so lockstep together that God is at work to try and help his people with something they don't know they need help with. They need to be separated, set apart, rescued from this enemy territory and enemy culture that they've kind of blurred into. And so God is in the business right now through the life of Samson of creating ways to drive a wedge between God's people and their enemies, to create division, to create discourse between them and they don't even realize that they need to be at odds with an enemy that they have got comfortable living next door to. And so through the life of Samson, his lustful desires, his temper, his revenge, his like spontaneous acting, his impulsive behavior, God uses that, we're going to see, to do exactly what he intended to do was to stay true to his promise that he's going to bless his people, that he's going to give them an inheritance, that they won't be lost. But the way that he goes about doing it and the person that he uses, I think will make a lot of us a little bit like, eh, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel comfortable. And so for chapter 14 and 15, really, we see a lot of the rest of Samson's story. And like I said, we're not going to go through it line by line, but we're going to look at some of the highlights and see how those things begin to play out with this impulsive, unteachable guy, Samson. So verse 5 says, As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. And at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. And he did it as easily as if it were a young goat, like you do. Because some of you have practiced your goat ripping skills, right? I don't know if we should be friends. I'm nervous. But he didn't tell his father and mother about it. So... So he is on his way to Timnah. He's talked his parents into, we're going to go get this girl and I'm going to make her my wife. On the way, a lion comes out to attack him. And here's what gets, I want you to take note of this. The spirit of the Lord was on him. God gave him special power and strength to tear this lion up. Meanwhile, the only thing Samson's thinking about is not the lion. He's one step ahead of the lion to the pretty lady at the other end of this little trip he's on, right? And so he just shreds the lion, and 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 then it's like sin begets sin. He touches a, a dead body, which is part of his vow. Remember we talked about last week that he's not supposed to touch dead bodies, so he touches the dead body, but then it says like there's this distinction that he doesn't tell his parents about it. And so it's like I did something to break the commitment that my parents have known I've made since birth, and I, and, and I know I broke it, but I don't really care. There's a pretty lady at the other end of this trip, and all I want to do is talk to her. And so it's like now he's going to even cover it up and not tell his parents. And so... After seeing the woman at the other end of the trip, he gets even more excited because she's even prettier than he remembered, it seems. And plans are put into place for uh, a wedding to become uh, in the days to come or weeks to come. Now, one of the things I want you to take note of when you're reading this story in scripture, you'll see things that say that she is this Philistine woman and Samson, they'll refer to her as his wife. 
And it can get a little bit confusing because you can be sort of like, like it felt like they were going to get married, but then she gets married to somebody else and you'll get confused. The context here is that she was betrothed to him, committed to him. In the world we live in, it's called engaged. Okay, She was engaged. They were committed to be married, which there's lots to learn about that in the ancient culture. But like for this purposes of this story, she's his fiance whether she wanted to be or not. That's just how it worked. And so that's the, the way it goes. So she's committed to be married to him. And in their culture, it was normal to have a big bachelor party, not a one-nighter, but a whole week deal, right? Like they really threw a party. So he throws the big old party that future in-laws decide they want to really show support of this new son-in-law to be. And so they send 30 young guys from their family to kind of go and be a part of the bachelor festivities to kind of say like, hey, we want to, we're welcome to the family. Here's a bunch of us to get to know a bunch of you and we're going to party together and we're going to be family and all this stuff. Well, Samson, shocker, loves to be the center of attention at a party thrown for him. And so it's not enough that everybody knows that he's strong or that he's got luscious locks, right? Or that he's beautiful. It's like now he's got to show off his wit and see if he can win them with a riddle, like that he's smarter than them. And so just for fun, he's going to show off how smart he is. So he makes up this deal with them, this bet. We're going to, I'll throw a bet together. If you guys can solve this riddle, um, then I'll give you 30 pairs of clothes. Like, and he kind of goes into these details. It's kind of funny, the details in here of like regular street clothes, but I'll also throw in 30 pairs of like prom suits, right? Like the best get up festival clothes, And if I say that to you, you guys all think of a different festival and you get the wrong idea. Prom clothes, right? We're not talking Burning Man. Prom clothes. And so it's a big deal. It's expensive, right? And so they bite. They say, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And we want to commit to it. And and, and then they start to panic a little bit. Like reality sets in. This is going to be expensive if we lose because we have to pay him or, you know, provide all those clothes. So they go to the Philistine lady who is one of them, and they plead their case with her and explain, like, you didn't invite us to this thing. Like, if we come here and we lose this bet, we're going to end up being broke. And so you've got to help us out, right? And so they make a case with her. She goes to Samson, bats her eyes, turns on the waterworks, and she convinces him to give her the answer to the riddle, which she, in turn, hands over to her friends. And, of course, they come right back to Samson and go, look how smart we are. We solved your riddle. Well, let me tell you what, Samson is not a good loser. Not a lot of people really like to lose. Samson may be the epitome of the worst loser. It did not go well when they solved his riddle. Verse 19 says, then the spirit of the Lord, here we go again, God giving him special power and strength. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. And here we go, getting a little bit more uncomfortable. The spirit of the Lord is on him to go kill a bunch of people for a frivolous reason, so that he could pay off a bet that he probably shouldn't have made, right? And then Samson takes his toys and goes home because he's going to pout because he didn't get what he wanted. It didn't go the way he wanted to. So he goes back home to his mom and dad. But it doesn't last very long. And he gets to thinking about that pretty lady 
that he didn't get. She sort of caught his attention. And so he's thinking about her again. And then sometime along the way, he goes by the lion carcass again, no doubt to probably kind of feed his ego a little bit, like I remember when I killed that lion, right? And this time it's this rotten carcass and there's bees that have nested in it and it says that there's making honeycomb. And you know, when you, like all of us, when we see a bee nest and think maybe there's honey in there, the first thing we do without thinking is grab for the honey, right? You guys all do that? Nobody does that. That's a weird thing that Samson does that just reveals his impulsiveness. And then he does again. It's like he's touching a dead body. It's like careless. It's just do what makes me feel good right now. But then he gives some of the honey to his parents. And it's like he's, he's sharing literally the fruit of the type of behavior that he wasn't supposed to be doing with his own family. And so he gets down again to Timnah. And it literally says in the text that he goes to the house where this lady lives, kicks the door in, goes straight to her dad and says, hey, where is she? Where's the bedroom? We're going to get her done now. And the, the dad has to tell him, time out. Uh, I got some updates for you since you pouted and went home. I didn't think you were interested in her, so we actually married her off to someone else, a guy that was the best man at your wedding. Oh, but don't wait. I, 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 don't, you know, before you get too mad, he's aware of his temper, uh, I have a younger daughter, and she's even prettier, and so he's trying to appease him with his younger daughter. Well, needless to say, Samson didn't take too kindly to yet again not getting what he wanted. And things go even weirder from here. Samson goes and catches 300 foxes. And so what I learned from reading the book of Judges is that there was a big problem with foxes in Israel. Because I've never even seen 300 foxes in my whole life. And I've looked right? There's 300 foxes for the catching. So he catches 300 foxes. He ties their tails together. He grabs torches, ties them to the uh, tails of these mad foxes and lights them up, cuts them loose. And they go like crazy through the land, burn down the crops and the grain of the Philistines, destroying their food. And if that's not enough, his temper's still flaring. And so he tears up their vineyards and olive groves and just destroys their income, their livelihood, and their food. And the Philistines get wind of what's going on and all of the devastation, and they're looking to figure out how did this happen, who's to blame, like who ticked him off? Like, don't you know he's got a like short fuse, literally, right? And they find out that it was this guy, this Philistine man with a daughter, and that he made this dumb decision to not give his daughter to Samson. So all of this gets dumped on them. It's their fault. And they come to a horrible end and are actually burned and killed. And here's where it's just tough. is because in all of this, God is at work. Samson's able to kill the lion. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. He's able to kill 30 Philistines to pay off a bad debt. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. He's able to catch all these foxes, do all this damage, tear up people's property. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. And what we're seeing is how God is at work to accomplish his purpose of dividing and rescuing. It's like 
his people don't know that they need rescue. They're not crying out for help. They're, they're, they're so close to being absorbed and, and just non-existing in the near future. And, and God is at work going, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way to drive a wedge between his people and their enemies, to create friction where there was not enough friction, to create problems where there was no problem, to create anger and division where there needed to be anger and division. And he goes about doing it in a way that when we look at the story and we think about what God's doing and we look at the individual instances, it's really hard. It's uncomfortable. It makes us start asking a lot of questions like, like how can God use such flawed people? Like, how could God use a messed up guy like Samson? We want to know, like, shouldn't God work with just people that are good? Like, like it seems more right that God would use godly people to do godly things, right? We even wonder, like, shouldn't God just use people that are at least thinking the right things? doing the right things. They have the right kind of behavior, right? And the problem is, those are normal questions. And I think any of us that have looked at God's story and seen some of these instances that are uncomfortable to look at, I think we've all thought those things if we haven't talked about them out loud. The problem is when we start to think like that and we start to really give uh, credence to believe those things, like God has to use people that are good, then we don't know it, but we're starting to put God in a box, we're starting to put God in a box that is, that is controlled by people. Like God can only work if the people are good or if they're doing the right things and thinking the right things, then God. And all of a sudden, the people are driving the bus, not God. And all of a sudden, God's grace is not in control. All of a sudden, God is not allowed to take initiative and intercede in the lives of people that don't even know that they need his help yet. We're relying on us cleaning up our act, acting the right way, saying the right things, doing the right things, before we can ask God to help us who are already doing the right things. It just makes no sense. And, and, and I'm so grateful it's not how it works. That God does use sinful people, sinful situations, hard to understand stuff to accomplish his purposes and his will and his plans to rescue and redeem and restore everybody into a right relationship with him. And I think Paul understood it really, really well. It's why he wrote the words that he did in Romans eight twenty eight. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Like, I think that's really important that we can miss that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, like all things, like only the nice stuff, only the stuff that's fair works for the good. Only the stuff that's comfortable, that feels nice, that's PG, right? No, all things. All things can work together for the good of God's people who are called according to his purpose. And it's uncomfortable. So as the story continues, the violence keeps escalating, and ultimately the Israelites capture their own judge, Samson. They strike up a deal with him, tie him up, hand him over to their enemies, the Philistines, and Samson breaks free, and in one of his most famous feats ever, he grabs the 
the jawbone of a, a donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines in some miraculous feat of strength with the spirit of the Lord empowering him to kill a thousand Philistines. And so it's just, it's not hard to have a lot of questions when we read these things. Even just looking at Samson's life, like, hold on a second, like, he was set apart by God to be a Nazarite, like, he had this special vow, he was this miracle baby, he, had, he was destined to help begin delivering God's people from the Philistines, and, and God obviously was with him and empowering him, like, shouldn't it be that the longer he's alive, the, the more godly he's becoming? Doesn't it seem like, like he should become more holy the longer he's at this? And, it's, and yet when we look at Samson, like it's, he gets worse as his life goes on. And it's, it makes us stretch and wrestle with what is God up to. And I think one of the things that we learn through this story I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking it with you. It's something that the Bible makes uh, a distinction between, and it's not unique to, it, it, it shows up over and over throughout the text in different ways, but we get to see an example of it with the life of Samson, and I think it's something that you might be familiar with, but you might not be, and it's important for us to wrestle with it, because it can really affect our own personal spiritual journey and the way we see others in their spiritual journey. And it's this, that it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but not have uh, the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but not have the fruit of the Spirit. And this is not just semantics. This is like really concrete stuff. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit. They're things like teaching and preaching and prophesying, things that are used to help other people, serve people, do things in the community. They can be used for other things too, but they're doing, right? So the, the gifts of the Spirit uh, are skills for doing is a good way to think about them. And then in Galatians 5, uh, Paul introduces us to the fruit of the Spirit. And it's more like your character traits. It's like being a Christian. The, the evidence that, you, that you're walking with God, God is in you and alive and at work changing you, is going to be this fruit that shows up in your life. Like gentleness and patience and, and self-control. It's this being versus doing. And, and then in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, it's a pretty famous passage. It gets read a lot at weddings because it talks about love. And there's, it's almost like this kind of beautiful poetry about what, love's, what love is and what it's like and, and why it's the most important thing. But what, for our purposes today, like it's important to recognize Paul is highlighting the fact that you can have gifts... You can have external skills, abilities, you know, things that God's blessed you with to, to do kingdom stuff. You can have the ability to do things, but you can also not have fruit of the Spirit alive and at work inside of you. And, and the way he goes on in this whole back and forth in, 13, in 1 Corinthians 13 is like, you can have the, the gift of teaching. You can have the gift of preaching. You can have all of these skills that God's given you, but... If you don't have this, this internal 
evidence of God at work in you, which he describes as love, is of, of the utmost importance. If you're not really loving, like if, if, if you're not being transformed to be a loving person, but you're a great teacher, you're great in your community, you have all kinds of ability to serve and do good things, he's like, I just want you to know that all of that is worth nothing without this. And so he's highlighting the fact that, that you can have these external gifts, but not have this sorted out. And it's the exact same thing that Jesus harps on the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He was so frustrated. The thing that just got under his skin, and he used these analogies to, he, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. He says, on the outside, you, everything looks right. You're doing the right things, saying the right things. You have killer preaching abilities. You've got the right clothes, the right tassels, the right, you go to the right meetings, like everything's right. But on the inside, when you peel the onion back, you open up the tomb, you're just a bunch of dead bones. Like it's not, there's nothing living. You're just dead. And he says also, like he compares them to a, a cup. And he says, like, outside of the cup, great, polished up, pretty, looks really nice on the shelf, but you pick it up and you go to take a drink of it, and we've all done this, where it's like it, you, it, you pull one out of the cupboard and you go to, and you're like, oh, gross, like something didn't make it through the dishwasher, right? And you're like, I'm not going to drink out of that. Why? Because it's dirty. He says, it, it, you can be one way on the outside and not be right on the inside, and that's a problem. And one of the things that we see with Samson is that God can and does work through people who have gifts, who have skills, empowers them to do things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right on the inside. And man, that makes you stretch. It makes you wrestle with what God's like and how God wor- works. But I think it's really, really important that we recognize this tension, this, the risks at play of, of using external behavior. Like, what do people do on the outside? What does it look like? How do they speak? How do they talk? How do they act? How do they work? What kind of good are they doing? When we look at that only, and we use that as evidence of how people are as Christians, like, are they healthy? Are they good? Are they mature? Are they a solid Christian? When we're looking at the external stuff, we are judging the wrong stuff. And we live in a world that values production, external doing hard stuff, doing good things like working hard, right? You don't hear about people probably very often that ever get a raise because they were gentle. I was evaluating our employees and you are the most gentle person. And for that reason, I'd like to give you a 50 cent an hour raise. Like we're quantifying how we value that like inner person, how God is at work in you. That's a, no way. It's like, you make coffee faster than anybody else, and I need three of you. You get a raise, right? Like, we value people's production, what they do. And because of that, you have to understand, we live in a world, in a society, in a culture, that everything around us is saying, like, care about what it looks like on the outside. 
get totally hung up on how people talk, how people act, what they do, what they can get done, what they can't get done, and value them based on that. And, and I'm just telling you, like, we have to be aware of that because it, it, it's a trap that gets us looking at the wrong thing instead of learning to cultivate the fruit in each other's lives of God at work in us and through us. It shows up all the time in the world that we live in. We see all kinds of Christian leaders in the Christian world who are doing awesome stuff, doing amazing things, have crazy testimonies, amazing stories of what they've done in ministry over the years. And then we get a sneak peek for some reason, sometimes on purpose, or sometimes it's a terrible accident that something gets revealed and you get to see inside the cup and inside the cup of this superhero of the faith, it's rotten and there's horrible stuff going on. And it's like, ugh, again. And that's the thing that's so frustrating is that it happens so often when we hear about those stories, we're not appalled and shocked that it could ever happen. We're disappointed. And then we are like, oh, that's such a bummer again because we see it all too often. And so for us as a church and for you as individual Christians, it's super important for us to just keep stretching and growing into like not falling into the trap of saying, like, are we doing the right things on the outside to, to show up as evidence that we're maturing in Christ? Like, we don't want to be a how do we look on the outside church? We don't want to be individuals who are all focused on what are we doing and how do we look to other people? We want to like push past that and go, how do we help each other grow healthy fruit by God's grace? How do we have conversations about gentleness and kindness and self-control and patience as opposed to production? And I think that's something that all of us are susceptible to. So I'm just going to wrap up with uh, some keys to kind of help safeguard our heart, like just three simple things for us personally to kind of help us safeguard against like what we do on the outside versus who we are on the inside. The first thing is real simple, just what we've been talking about. Uh, Just recognize the distinction between gifts and fruit, you know, whether it's doing on the outside or changing on the inside. Fruit is the proof, not gifts. And so when we're inclined to look at somebody else and admire them as a Christian, are you admiring what they're doing or are you admiring who they are? Because it's who they are in Jesus that matters. Like, is there real apples growing on the tree? Or do they just talk about how many trees they've planted? The second thing is your prayer life, not your religious activity, is the best indicator of your spiritual health. So again, like these are these are things for us to like safeguard. Like how how's my prayer life? If you're is it warm? Is it comfortable? Do you pray consistently? Do you pray often? Can you not remember the last time you prayed? Do you only pray in case of emergency? Do you have two special prayer flares that you keep in the trunk of your car? Only if needed, right? Like you'll break them out if it's really important. Other than that, you're not going to bother God. Like what's your prayer life like? And, and, and that's a great indicator of like your spiritual life, your spiritual maturity, your relationship with God. Like are you cultivating soil that fruit will grow in? That type of thing. And I put in your notes that if you're struggling with prayer, which a lot of people do, 
And you're like, I don't really know how to get started, or I've tried, but it lasts two days, and then that thing falls away. And you want to grow in your prayer life, and you want to grow in your, uh, like, how to learn how to pray and talk to God, and you want some help with that, there's an email in there. Just shoot us an email and say, I want help with prayer. And I promise you, we'll get you hooked up with a mentor who will talk with you and coach you and dig in with you and help you stretch and grow in your ability to pray. Because it's really, really important. And so if you want help, we're here. You just have to ask. And then the last thing is this. Don't try to do Christianity primarily on your own. Right? Don't try and do it on your own. When, when you go solo, I know we talk about this a lot. Like it's, Discipleship happens best in relationships. But, but here's the thing you've got to understand. That in order for us to be transformed, to really be a bunch of people that value fruit growing in each other's lives, we've got to be in real relationships with each other because it's in those real relationships that we get to get close enough and, and, and around each other enough that we get past looking at the clean cup on the outside and we actually get to see some of the mess inside our cups. And we get to be with people that we love and that we trust that can say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I don't think some of your cup got cleaned up last week, right? Like, did you hear the way you said such and such to somebody, right? And you're close enough that you can have real conversations with each other. And some of you in here are like, man, that sounds great, but I don't even know how to find that kind of person. Like, where do you find real people that really want to follow Jesus, that will get into those kind of relationships and take it seriously. Like, sounds awesome. Is there an app for that? Which way do I swipe, right? Here's the deal. In the email, or in the notes there, I put my email in there. You can also talk to any one of us on the team. All I can say is this. It's on you to ask, to say, I I want those kind of friends. I want to be in that kind of a small group of people that'll help each other the way you're talking about. It's on you to ask. So you, you get a hold of me and say, hey, I want that. And then I promise you, if you get a hold of me, I will have a small group for you this week to go check out. There are amazing groups of people that are digging in and helping each other learn how to grow and, and get to know and follow Jesus in our group that would love to help you do the same. But you got to let us know. So we're going to finish up with uh, worship, and uh, the team's going to come on out here. And I just want to say it's really, really cool being a part of a church that worships God. Like this morning as we were worshiping, uh, both first service and second service, just being in here this morning, not only just the, the songs this morning, but being able to just stand here and listen and hear people praising God. Like there's something just super powerful about showing up in person, standing shoulder to shoulder with people that praise God, that you can look around the room and go, I'm, a, I'm amongst friends that love Jesus and are trying to figure this out just like me. And that's important. And so we're going to finish this morning. I just want to pray for us, and then, uh, um, and then we're going to worship. Let's go ahead and stand up and pray. Man, God, we just, we just stand before you. We love you. You're a good, good God. And, and as we look at how you work and what you do to bring about your will and your plan, sometimes it's uncomfortable, and it's hard to understand, Lord. And, and yet, we can also see how you're deeply committed to stay true to your promises. And that's pretty reassuring. And so, God, we just thank you for that. And I just want to pray for each and every person here, Lord. If there's anything that's holding them up from kind of stepping forward in their relationship with you, whether it be 
asking for help with prayer, whether it be getting vulnerable and, and putting themselves out there to, to get in a group or whether it be just getting to know you. I just pray that you would just give them courage right now, like even, even as we worship and sing, that you would fill their heart with courage and that they would step past whatever's holding them back. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.